Hello, and welcome to Classical Schmassical, an anti-classical classical music podcast. Tune in every Saturday as we discuss, deconstruct, and dissect what it means to be a musician in the modern world. I'm your new host, Murphy Sievertson. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm excited to introduce our guest. Joshua Roman is a cellist, composer, and curator whose performances embrace musical styles from rock to radiohead. Before setting off on his unique path as a soloist, Roman was the Seattle Symphony's principal cellist, a job he began at just 22 years of age. He's also become renowned for his genre-bending repertoire and wide-ranging collaborations. He was also named a TED Senior Fellow in 2015. Collaborators include Tony Winner and MacArthur Genius Grant recipient Bill T. Jones, East African vocalist Somi, the Jack St. Lawrence and Verona Quartets, Tony-nominated actor Anna DeVere Smith, poet Tracy K. Smith, violinist Vadim Guzman, and conductor David Donsmeyer. Roman's outreach endeavors have taken him to Uganda with his violin-playing siblings where they played chamber music in schools, HIV and AIDS centers, and displacement camps. On January 14th, Roman will perform Tondun's Crouching Tiger Suite and premiere Donna Milovanich's Composer in Resonance, Reynaldo Moya's Cello Concertino Rise with the Chicago Philharmonic. Also programmed on the concert, guitar Sharon Isbin will perform the American premiere of Dune's Concerto for Guitar and Orchestra, Ye Too. Welcome to the pod. <laughs> Thank you, Murphy. Thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the first question I wanted to ask um, is just sort of a general question about uh, what is the landscape of classical music to you? What does it look like? Um, where do you see it going? Where do you see it coming from? Um, what is sort of the best case scenario uh, of the future of classical music? I know this is a big question. But... It's a light, light, light talk to begin. Yeah, small yeah, talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah. Let's dive in. Yes, I mean, I think it's interesting right now. I feel like over the last... 10, especially last 10, but over the maybe even the last 20, 30 years, there's been a growing interest in maybe questioning what classical music is and uh, what it isn't. And one of my favorite things that has come out of that is a renewed interest in the parts of the tradition that help us move forward. So not necessarily the canon, which we idolize the, you know, the great pieces of 100, 200, 300 years ago, but like, what were the composers doing? What was the environment that allowed for people to be creative and to make works that would last that long, that mm -hmm. we're still impressed by them? And ultimately, for me, that's not the goal, but the goal is to be a part of a, a living environment and a living tradition of creativity and connection and mm. aspiration and yeah that traces its roots to before something called classical music was called classical music and i love that um framing it in that way gives us an opportunity to write the future in a way that is more inclusive of both the past and the present and the future i think so um i'm excited about that yeah and sort of yeah that's such a that's such a phenomenal response because i feel like it encapsulates a lot 
of the sort of current moment of discontent with classical music because you know we're we're i think that we're in this sort of period of like trying to reckon and trying to move forward but also like acknowledgement of the 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 thing that we call our careers (laughs) right um and so what is at at like the heart of it you do a lot of collaboration is is that sort of at the heart of this conversation for you i think it's a big part of it one of the things that has driven me is my own personal experience obviously Um, but it's a bit different than what people might expect um, who don't read further into the bio i actually grew up Mm. in oklahoma where i was pretty much the only cellist that i knew and Mm -hmm. so i just played with everybody and i you know i played with my friends who played whatever instrument was around didn't matter what the style was. I picked up other instruments and learned how to play them also. And for me, that was very important and formative. And so when I went to conservatory at 16 and suddenly was surrounded with only classical musicians, that was the anomaly for me. Mm. And it was really interesting to dive in and learn more. And it's not like I was trying to avoid that before. It's just what was around me. And it felt very natural to be a musician and to share and to collaborate with anyone who was creative and wanted to make a connection. So I've tried to to honor that and keep that as a as a part of my life. And every once in a while, something has happened to bring that for, forward from the background and into the center stage on in my career. And it's it's been interesting to watch that dance, um, whether that's accepted as something that a soloist does or whether that is something that sets me apart or even is interesting, but but like quirky and, and not great. So mm-hmm. it's it's been a fun exploration. Collaborating is central to what I do and being open to collaborating with people who speak a different musical language um, is important to me, not only from a philosophical perspective, but also just because it helps me connect with my roots. So, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a really fascinating um, background that I think more and more classical musicians are starting to have, which I think is really, really exciting. yeah, and what what would you say sort of defines your like your definition of what a soloist is? I, I yeah, it's a it's funny you ask that. I actually struggle with the word, and mm-hmm. it's not just because of thinking about it, but also because of things that were said to me when I was much younger about mm. um, the arrogance of of calling yourself a soloist. But it's just also funny when I go to work and my dressing room says soloist or mm-hmm. uh there was one time a few years ago you know I, I i'm talking about it as if i sort of have a little bit of trouble with the word i used to not be able to say the word at all and yeah. it, I, was, I was traumatized by something i'd been told uh, at a young, younger age to the point where I, I think i was it was with the scottish bbc orchestra bbc scottish mm-hmm. symphony and i was playing there and happened to glimpse the itinerary of the conductor and we typically have a meeting with the soloist and the conductor and for me it's called the conductor meeting and so i go to the conductor meeting and we run through the piece before i go out and play it and um i caught 
a glimpse of this conductor's itinerary and it said soloist meeting and I was like wait what I'm the soloist yeah. <laughs> and it, it was it was a weird thing it's it's a funny it's a funny thing it really cracked something open for me that I had been denying the role that I was in and yeah. So it's a trick, it's a loaded word for me, I think a bit extra and I'm coming around <laughs> to, you know, I, I said the word um, mm -hmm. soloist and I'm trying to practice saying that and being comfortable with it because when I get on stage alone, I'm a soloist. When I get on stage as the guest musician with an orchestra, often the piece is written to showcase me or yeah. the cello and I'm there playing mm -hmm. the cello. So. Um, to deny that role is a weird, a weird thing that almost makes it harder for everyone else to do their job. And yeah. so the question is, what does it do that's bad? And I think the idea of the virtuoso who's removed and who does everything alone and who is so much better than everybody else that they should just grovel you know, mm -hmm. the, the Paganini, <laughs> the Paganini thing. I mean, that's, I think, I'm not going to say there's no place for that, but I think that right. a lot of people get that in their heads and that can be a harmful image and using a word that has those connotations for a lot of people. Um, it speaks to immediately brings up things for people who either have never wanted that or wanted that and didn't get it or who, yeah. It's just, it's complicated. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's another sort of aspect of music that um, is hard to grapple with sometimes is that it is in some ways a very solitary art. Um, yes. uh, like, you know, practicing for 12 <laughs> to, to 17 hours a day. And <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, even for composing, it's sitting at the computer. Um, but then the the act of of making music, even in in a solo sense, is such a a communal act because you're you know even if it's just you with your cello on stage, you're still engaging with people who are theoretically you know listening and engaging engaging with your music. Um, so I guess it's it's an interesting question of like how do you how do you find ways to engage with the sort of act of being alone and cultivating your craft, and then also like engaging with uh your orchestra and conductors and collaborators um like uh, yeah what's that balance look like for you that's a that's a good way of jumping into it i mean i think that i the thing that that i think about when i'm playing is exactly that that like if no one is around then sure it's kind of fun but it doesn't it's not the same it doesn't do the same mm -hmm. thing it doesn't feel the same it doesn't sound the same it's just not, I don't know, it's, it's totally different. And so for me, soloist isn't supposed to be alone, yeah. um, but almost, I mean, you're, you're in a moment where people's attention are focused on you. And what do you mm -hmm. do with that? You have to lead and direct that attention somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And you have to if you're if you're alone on stage that means it's the music it's the connection that that brings and starts with choosing the music that you're going to play for people and and thinking about why you want people to hear that music and then it goes to the moment where you're playing and uh what what are you 
what are your actions directed towards? And when you've got other people that you're collaborating with on stage, that's also beautiful and entirely different because you can, you can be a leader. I feel like when I play the Dvorak cello concerto, mm -hmm. I have, of course, um, in the story, of the musical story, the cello has the main role and it's a cello concerto and it's designed to do that. But if I just do that and ignore the orchestra, the piece doesn't have the same power as if I lead the orchestra. And yeah. if I'm engaged with them, if I'm helping the conductor not getting in the way, that's the other thing. It's like the conductor is the leader of the orchestra. The concert master has a role. My mm -hmm. role is to play this part of soloist. Mm -hmm. And to see where that intersects, where that in inspiration can be injected, to find the people um, behind the sounds, behind the instruments. Yeah, absolutely. And inspire us to co-create each moment and to be really fully present for it um, and not just uh, checked out, moving our arms or mm -hmm. blowing our horns, so. <laughs> That, oh gosh, that's such a phenomenal answer because I feel it, it's it's I mean it's always about passion, right? Like yeah. that's that's sort of the end um, bit of the conversation that I think um, like we're trying to have. Uh, but also, I I I feel like it, you you used so many strong words, and there's a lot of strong emotion and passion behind this type of art and this type of craft. Um, how <laughs> how then do you sort of like deal with that pressure because it's i think that there's a lot of internal drive and a lot of internal pressure to mm -hmm. to be whatever it is we need to be as artists and yes. as soloists um i think m one of the things i know a lot of composers struggle with is like i have to write music that means something or that says something mm -hmm. um it, so as a soloist and as someone who is um, communicating, you know, your work as a composer and then also other works of, of composers, um, <laughs> how do you deal with that pressure? You know, it's such a good, uh, a good question. And it's kind of strange maybe, but the thing that has started to make it all easier in terms of communicating an essence, mm -hmm. um, and the pressure that of, of like, it's almost like a, um, an ethical pressure. <laughs> it's like, is yeah, it focus on it, me or the music, you know? It sometimes feels like a duty. Uh, a duty, <laughs> I like that, yeah, yeah. It, it can. But the thing that makes it, has started to make that so much easier is spending more time with composers. Yeah. Because when I get to know the people who are asking me to do something which is what composing mm -hmm. is you're giving a set yeah. of instructions and ask somebody you're asking somebody to communicate that idea the number of times that i've played for a composer and they've been super concerned about like intonation or perfection <laughs> have been incredibly small i'm not going to say they yeah. haven't happened <laughs> but like <laughs> it's been minuscule compared to the number of times a composer is excited to hear life in these sounds that were mm -hmm. abstract sound in their head and then want to get to the bottom of like the reason the raison d'etre for the piece like why is this piece this way let's mm -hmm. communicate that and the thing that i take great comfort in and this is 
eases the pressure throughout the whole process for me, even through the performances, is mm -hmm. focusing on the why. And that makes all the other stuff seem like it's in service of that. And that takes away nerves and yeah. uh, anxiety because it's much, I don't know, for me, maybe it's not true for everybody, but I feel like if, if on a very basic level, if my goal is to, to share joy or to share sadness, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna get as nervous about that as I am gonna be like, my goal is to hit this octave perfectly and it's right, right in this tiny little spot. So mm -hmm. the octave belongs in service to the thing that's being communicated. And when that alignment is there, um, everything from thinking to collaborating to practicing to performing gets easier. That is such a good way, the, the octave being in service to the, the reason. Um, is such a such a phenomenal way to to frame um, technique, you know. I think mm. in a lot of conversations about, uh, I think that as a, uh, as a composer, I'm often like, I don't care about the technique as long as you get the feel, the essence, mm -hmm. which is what what you mentioned, right? Um, but I think that there is definitely like there are there's a reason why the technique is developed, and good technique often will result in a more clear and concise communication mm -hmm. of the emotion of the of the piece of music yeah yes so I, but yeah it's inherent in the name itself though technique is right. the how what mm -hmm. technique are you using to communicate yeah. blank mm -hmm. so you have to have blank that's that's the whole thing yes. and then the technique is built around that and mm -hmm. in a in a um fairly specific uh, what's the word? Not siloed, but we've gotten so um, focused on one element of what we do, especially through yeah. the 20th century. But but so technique has become down. Yeah, yeah, and it's all about. And we're getting away from that again. I mean, it's it's a broad brush to paint with. But um, technique is not everything, but it it has. Mm -hmm outpaced other elements i think of what we do and you see that in teaching from the very beginning from mm -hmm. when kids are handed an instrument and uh yeah. you know is it fun and expression or is it doing it right mm. yeah that's such a good point i mean yeah I, how if we could move on to you know talking about teaching uh yeah. do you feel that like your background as a person who is not sort of raised raised specifically hardcore in the in the classical music tradition but rather in a more holistic and like maybe maybe one might describe it as natural uh sort of musical upbringing um do you feel like that has really impacted the way in which you teach to younger people or um especially younger people who are coming to you from a sort of more conservatory-based background um Definitely. I, I, it's always fun to, to open people's eyes a little bit. And mm -hmm. especially when people have seen a narrow part of something that you do and they, they look at you in a certain light and then to, to say, well, sure, you got to be great at that, but that's not everything. So let's, let's take a look at, at what else is important to you and figure out why that's not coming across mm -hmm. um 
there are so many people that are over-specialized um, is yeah. actually the word I was looking for earlier was specialized over-specialization yeah. from such a young age and it's just it's so weird to me it's so weird that we've created this this I will call it a silo this silo where mm -hmm. your your training on an instrument can be so developed and your technique can go um, almost the sky's the limit but then you're a fan of something like, let's say, Justin Timberlake. I know that's an old reference <laughs> now, but you're a fan of, of Justin Timberlake and it's your, he's your favorite artist. And then somebody asks you to play one of the tunes and you can't. Yeah. Or you can't do it in the style that mm -hmm. he does. It's like that stuff. It's to me, it's it's such a shame that that's not a part of our training is to find the things that we love that are music and learn how yeah. to express them as a part of our technique. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's always been there because of my musical upbringing, because of especially my parents. I had very mm -hmm. fairly, I would say, um, my, my classical teacher, he was great. I think the only non-standard thing about that is that he's a violinist. Yes, <laughs> so I studied yeah. with the violinist for the first 10 years, even though I was on the cello. And mm -hmm. otherwise and it was lessons. Did you start lessons with him when you were three? That's right. Yeah. On the Suzuki cello? method on the cello. He would demonstrate Incredible. on his violin. And but but it was a pretty it was a fairly uh I would say standard classical mm -hmm. um experience as far as Mr. McClary was concerned. But mm -hmm. it was the other parts of my life, which were the daily parts and, and weekly parts of my musical experience from the earliest of ages that were the creative, flexible, um, improvising, uh, collaborating ones that really mm -hmm. shaped this. And I do feel are important, not that every kid needs to know how to do everything, but if you love music that you don't play because someone told you that it's not proper, I have a problem yeah. with that. No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, it does seem like you can do everything, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's the goal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting. Um, I I continually I start I start to see more and more composer performers. You know, I think mm -hmm. that is starting. Thank gosh, I yes. I it's such an exciting growth of a group of people um, that I feel is you know really starting to to make it make a little comeback um comeback that's so, good yes yeah. because that is the tradition until the 20th yeah, century exactly. yeah exactly yeah um and how how would you feel like you know doing composition and have you did you start like composing at a very specific time was it always something that you engaged with as a performer like was it something that uh came naturally to you it i would love to hear more about your compositional journey i yeah i'm gonna tell you the story of how i began composing because i think it's so hilarious it's an example of of me wearing those those um blinders that i was given about what things are and what they're supposed to be and the, the different roles i you know i guess i i played around a tiny bit with it when I was a kid, like I would write one line and I'd be like, this is going to be my symphony, but it would just be like one violin line, 10 measures max. 
Um, and I did, I was encouraged to do a composition thing when I was like 13 and I, I did it, but I, I, I like, I didn't really pay much attention to it and I improvised half of it. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was, it was much later, I'm trying to remember, I would have been around 30, a little younger, I think, um, but around 30 years old when I was collaborating with Anna Devere Smith on a project mm -hmm. um, called On Grace. And if uh, any of our listeners don't know who she is, you should check her out. Mm -hmm. um, she's an amazing actor, powerful uh, figure, activist. She created her own form of theater where she interviews people on a subject, a bunch mm -hmm. of different people on one subject, and then will act out over the course of an evening length uh, performance, act out those characters and what they're saying and give you a, a really well-rounded picture of an idea or an event. So she's done the healthcare system, the LA race riots, yeah. like all sorts of things. And we did one on Grace. And mm. as we were working together, she really wanted the cello to be not just background, but to like become a character. And this was new for her. And so she put a lot of trust in me and I was taking that very seriously. And so I went straight to Bach. Um, it's like, wow, this is to work with Anna Devere Smith, first of all, but then to have this trust to do something new and become yeah. an equal partner in the creation of this thing. And we were using Bach for a while. And, and, and then at a certain point, I was like, you know, we need something longer here. Or we need something short. I don't remember longer, shorter. And the mood just doesn't stay the same long enough with this. And I don't want to start chopping up Bach. And she was like, no, 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 we can't do that. So I went home and I, I, I gathered all of my recordings of every solo cello piece that I could think of, the Ligeti, the Crumb, uh, the Kodai, uh, pieces my friends had written. And I sent all of those to her and she dutifully listened to those. And the next time we got together, <laughs> this is where it gets really, really trippy um, mm -hmm. for me. The next time we got together, I remember it was the Ligeti. I was using the opening for something and and because it has almost this folk-like simplicity and right and it just wasn't quite right and I was like it's just not quite right and she's like I know you're right it's 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 beautiful but it's not quite capturing it I was like I'm so sorry I will go back and look more but what we're looking for I just can't find it it's something like this and I just busted out with this riff that I made up and she was like oh that one play that one and I was like I was like I'm sorry that's not a thing I can't play that one it's not a piece and she was like I don't understand you just played it play it again and we had this this surreal exchange where I started to realize that that's what composing was and I was like oh okay but it goes farther because I real I did this and we did this this program um, that actually this weekend's performance at the Harris Theater, the last time I was there oh, was wow. with Anna doing On Grace. Um, oh my gosh. So this is a, a full circle moment. It's really exciting yeah. and we've been in touch about it all week. Um, so that was about 45 minutes of solo cello music that was quasi-composed, largely improvised. And the mm -hmm. next year, Grace Cathedral came back to me and they said, we want a solo cello piece to celebrate our next artist in residence it's a visual artist so just we need to commission a piece but it was like two months before the concert and i said none mm -hmm. of my composer friends are going to be able to do this and they're like oh we'll ask and so i gave them a list they asked of course everyone said no they were too busy 
So they came back to me and they said, well, you wrote that music last year. Why don't you write a piece? And I said, no, 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 I didn't write it. <laughs> and they're like, we don't understand. It was your music. And I was like, again, this surreal conversation where I was stuck in this way of thinking with these false boundaries and mm -hmm. I couldn't explain why I hadn't composed. And that made me realize that I could compose. And so I took that, that was actually what I consider my first piece because mm -hmm. I wrote all of the notes of writing light from beginning to end this 10 minute solo cello piece. And it was all based on a, a natural misunderstanding that led me to realize that creativity doesn't have boundaries, but those boundaries yeah. are false. And I just, it's, it's a, it's an anecdote. It's my own personal experience, but I've learned a lot from questioning the boundaries and from being around mm -hmm. people who needed an explanation and I couldn't explain. And I, I wish more people would have that experience. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I would also say that I think that that's an experience that a lot of people, well, maybe not the Anna Devere Smith sort of communique. <laughs> right. But I do think that it's an experience that a lot of musicians have of coming into a realization through whatever way that their musicianship is not bound by anything. Yes. Um, and I, I hope that we see just more and more of that. And I think that um, it's interesting to, to think about future generations and, and how we can teach future generations to not construct those, those false boundaries. Um, it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> it's hard because we do also, anytime we're communicating something, words themselves have to we have to have a common understanding of what they mean and there's a boundary yeah. and it's uh it's 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 complicated because it's living it's life it's human and mm -hmm. that's complicated and always evolving um so it's a it's a weird balance between understanding structure and being freed by it rather than constrained by it mm -hmm. it's hard absolutely yeah it's also joyful. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the thing that I, I would like more people to know about composing and, and performing music is that it's fun. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, that's the fun thing. So like, I'm curious, you compose. Mm -hmm. um, what is it like for you when you get a, a good idea? How do you oh, feel? Oh, I mean, it's the best. It's so, you. it's like euphoric. I mean, and then yeah. sometimes I go to sleep and I wake up and I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> of course, always. That's the worst. That's the worst. But I think that there is, I think you kept saying, like, it's not right. That is such a, like, a ubiquitous mm. feeling, I think. I think that there is a innate human understanding of what is right and what is not right for a type of a project, right? right. Like, because there weren't, there were boundaries to the to the project, to On Grace mm -hmm. that you had, right? Um and you knew how to fix them inherently as a musician who has studied like this craft. Um, and I think that there's like something about clicking into place and hitting that note perfect, hitting that octave perfectly. And also like knowing that it should be an E flat instead of a G, yeah. you know, in a piece of music. And just hearing that um, that music hitting in a, in a more specific and more different more different a, a, a sort of more <laughs> more yeah. refined way i think has a lot of it's not something that um is really 
definable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's up to you to define. And right. that's the, you know, you mentioned earlier sound, you said something like, sounds like you can do everything or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and I said, oh, that's the goal. But actually, um, <laughs> maybe the goal is to seem like you can. But ultimately, <laughs> if you're always trying to do everything, you'll never do anything. And yeah, those those boundaries or those limits, um, they can be helpful. And I think the problem is when they become more important than the act of creating itself. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a key part of the relationship is what what is what is keeping you on track, yeah. and what is a roadblock. Um, yeah. And that's, that's not even to say, you know, what the path is, but, but there's sometimes, sometimes we can feel it. And sometimes we can't, I don't know. It's, it's not always easy, but playing with that relationship is I think mm-hmm. important that relationship between um, the creative impulse and the things that help us focus in a way that moves something forward. Totally. Yeah. So like, what are the things that um, keep you on track? You know, like regardless, maybe even what are the non-musical things that keep you on track? Yeah, I mean, just time. Um, yeah. Every time I think about life and how short it is, really, and everything that I want to do, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to narrow this list down because yeah. I can't do that much today. Today is just yeah. one day, and um. I, I also, one of the, the, to me that, sorry, to me that actually is a joyful thought. I love thinking yeah. about the fact that life is short. Um, it spurs me to action. It makes me more cognizant of the preciousness, preciousness of each moment. Um, mm-hmm. That it is, if it were limitless, then I wouldn't care. So yeah, that's important. And it, and it leads me to other joyful things like people. Mm-hmm. People are yeah. so important to me. I love um, just being with people and outside of music, uh, family and, and friends and, and love are, are so important. And then bringing that into music as well and, and working with people that I, I love and mm-hmm. that I respect is very important to me. So that helps limit things because there are so many people in the world. There are so many opportunities. I can't work with everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's, let's go off of the energy that's there and and the potential to build beautiful things that, that I want to be a part of. And if I want to be a part of it, then maybe other people see that too and want to be a part of it. That, that, Ooh, chills. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so um, sort of circling back, what are you most excited about for this upcoming concert with the Chicago Phil? Well, the thing that got me to say yes immediately to this concert was the fact that both are pieces by living composers. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, for the world premiere by Ronaldo, I didn't know the piece because it hadn't been written. Okay. And uh, for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I love the movie. I'd seen it a long time ago, and I think I knew that it had been arranged as a cello concerto, but maybe not. And mm-hmm. that that's such a cool 
idea to me. I've always loved um, cinematic things, the, the scope, mm -hmm. the when you get a, a good chunk of time and a good story, just like where you can go with it and what can happen to characters along the way and what inside of you can be moved and unlocked and touched. It's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And, and I, I think about that a lot when I'm practicing particularly dynamic music or when I'm writing music. And so to play a film score essentially um, mm -hmm. just, seems super cool and I love working with a lot of percussion so mm -hmm. two living composers a world premiere um I'm there <laughs> <laughs> I'll jot that down for for my future to <laughs> oh yeah how to get Joshua Roman <laughs> new music yeah oh, I love yeah. it um is there anything else uh, that you're interested in, you know, promoting or or talking about. Um, I would love to hear more about your uh, Patreon, actually. Yes, um, Patreon is interesting. I started it a, a few years ago, and uh, the idea with Patreon, I think a lot of people probably know it by now because during the pandemic early days, it was used quite a bit. But um, I had been on it because it felt like a natural way to help me develop some of the uh, creative things that I was doing, not only in terms of music, like directly, like creating music, but also in terms of projects, in mm -hmm. terms of um, engaging with an audience and offering people different ways to tailor their experience. I think social media is uh, so, powerfully impacting us in ways that are really difficult to navigate and feel good about. And um, something like Patreon, it's just for now, at least it's a platform where you go there and you do that thing and you leave. And I feel good about yeah. that. Mm -hmm. I feel good about being able to offer people things where they're supporting me directly and um, and on their advertisers are yeah on their yeah. exactly on their terms i'm offering something and, and then when i first built it the idea was to offer things that i basically would be doing anyway so most of it's right. kind of a backstage look um mm -hmm. of what's going on i do practice sessions uh where i you know i talk a lot when i practice when i'm alone so basically i just do the same thing without the swearing on Patreon mm -hmm. for the most part. <laughs> That's <laughs> the $15 tier is the uncensored yeah. version. <laughs> right. And I'll stay in my pajamas for no, no. It's like it's uh actually sometimes I think I am in my pajamas. My nice, very comfortable pajamas. So um, Yeah, of course. Yeah, but it's very to me, um it's very interesting because it is speaking to that idea that an artist is not just this mythical, mysterious, yeah. uh, magical being who shows up on stage and gives you something that you could never understand. It's a person, it's a human being who's going through a process. And uh, I don't think it's any less magical to see yeah. that process. So that's what that's all about. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. And I, I'm interested in, in social media as we all are, I'm sure. Um, I think uh, it's an interesting idea because I think that in some ways, um, 
social media can amplify a mythic mm -hmm. artist as well. Um, so, you know, and then even it's like, you know, stars, they're just like us trying, trying, even the, the act of trying to do that as well can be a bit, a bit mythic as well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think Patreon has a lot of, of pros, uh, with regard to you know you're engaging in something really intentional mm -hmm. um and i think that uh that's that's another thing that i'm interested in like engaging with further is you know intentionality and and engaging with you know i want to do this project instead of this project um yes so yeah it, and and is that that's something that i'm sure you've had to do a lot of in your in your career um and how how have you found the balance between between all of that as well that's been tough for me that's something that i've only really been learning in the past two years um mm -hmm. i have if you read my bio it seems like i've just done so many things and it's true but also i haven't like gone that as deeply as i would like with a lot of them a lot of them are one-offs or things that just sort of happen to, to be there. And I'm a very, um, I'm generally a yes guy, even though I can be very like, uh, I bring a lot of, <laughs> I think I, I, I don't want to use the word criticism, but I, I bring a lot of, um, I have a lot of ideas, but, yeah. but generally it's within the context of yes. So, yeah, of course. So I, I, I do a lot of participating. And mm -hmm. what happens when you're always participating is that you're not giving time for your own ideas, the seeds of, of future projects to take root and to grow. And uh, I've been learning that. It's actually been challenging because it's something that I've tried to learn and I've known that I needed in my life. And it actually took a major health event for me to finally uh mm -hmm. put it into practice and i'm still going through this or feels like the early stages of learning what it's like to be more intentional and start projects that i'm actually going to finish instead of running around doing a bunch of things yeah it's fascinating. and i mean it's fascinating i i don't mean to get into this too deeply uh you know with our time constraints but you you speak of a, a, like a major health event I, um, in high school, ended up like getting diagnosed with some really chronic health issues. Mm. And before that, I was like uh, a really major soccer player. Oh. And I continued to sort of, I mean, I talk about strange paths into music. That's sort of what made me consider it uh, more wow. seriously. Um, because it, it made me sort of realize that this is a way in which I can express myself, touch people understand myself deeper etc um but also this is a way in which i can balance those things and try and do what i can to like communicate but also know that not everyone is going to understand but mm -hmm. yeah so i i it's it's it is life shattering i mean every routine that you have is disrupted by illness i think and i think that's not something that we talk about very often um, especially in the music world, I think that there is a lot of um, a lot of things uh, that are expected of musicians and artists that not everyone can can physically do. Um, 
Yeah. It's, it's, it's really true. difficult. It's really difficult. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, first of all, to hear that you had to go through that. It sounds like you've really come through it and mm -hmm. found something beautiful. And I am so happy that that's the case. It doesn't yeah. make the, the struggle easier necessarily. Right? Of course, of course. I mean, all these um, stories of like, you know, they beat the odds. I didn't want the odds <laughs> to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's done without that's, the odds. That's my daily thing. I mean, this, this is uh, so yesterday was my two year anniversary of getting um, testing positive for COVID, and I have wow. long COVID, uh, which yeah. I've now had for, you know, whatever whenever it officially starts after getting COVID, i've had it for mm -hmm. you know two years essentially wow and yeah. it is debilitating it is a constant struggle um even a conversation like this is something that requires a lot of energy management and mm -hmm. um cognitive things are a struggle for me uh physical things are a struggle and so playing was very much put into question for a while and is still something that I have to manage. Composing is really difficult because I struggle, especially with the cognitive, cognitive things. The brain and fog, yeah. The brain fog, which is such a generic term. And, and <laughs> but there, specifically I have, um, if you think of the brain as like a computer, my processor mm -hmm. gets overloaded very easily. So mm -hmm. my best example of that is when I first started playing again, um, after COVID, I could play, I was working the Sensons Cello Concerto up, um, mm -hmm. which is only 20 minutes long, and I learned it when I was like 13, so whatever, fine. But whatever. I, yeah, <laughs> but I could only play for like five minutes at a time before I'd be yeah. shaking violently or unable to lift my arms or open my eyes. Mm -hmm. So I finally worked my way up to where I could play 20 minutes, I could play the piece, and that was a major victory um, mm -hmm. a couple weeks into to trying to do that. and. Then I was like, okay, now that I can play it through, I have to practice it. And what I discovered right away was that I had a choice. I could play through the Sensons for 20 minutes, or I could practice one phrase for one minute, and the same thing would happen. I would be shaking, unable to lift my arms. Sometimes I had to have help tightening my bow, putting untightening my bow. Um, What's that called? Loosening, <laughs> loosening my bow, <laughs> putting the cello away. Um, and things are much better now in terms of my ability to manage this chronic condition, mm -hmm. but it is absolutely forcing me to prioritize. And the thing is like, I always, sorry, for the last few years, mm -hmm. I've known that I need to prioritize if I really want to do what I want to do, that I look at what's the way I make decisions and, and I see a lack of belief in my own ideas sometimes, mm -hmm. and that that's not going to happen until I follow through and that that's not going to happen until I start saying no. And nothing that I tried, I tried so many things to teach myself that <laughs> nothing worked. And I yeah. did not ask to get sick, but it's the thing that worked. Right. It's so yeah. crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, I remember when I first started recovering, I had to, um, it was, it was a pretty, it was a, you know, like you say, it's a daily struggle to find your routines and to say no and to know your body. I mean, I think that's the real, 
that's the real yeah. crux of the issue. Um, but I had my days scheduled by 15 minute increments. Yes, <laughs> totally. And that's what, like, that's what I had to do to get to a place where I could like function, which is so yeah. bizarre. And like, but I think it really teaches you to know, <laughs> know your body and know how, know what your limits are and understand like that type of stuff. And I, 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 I guess I understand how, how exhausting <laughs> that can be. Yeah. And I think it feels that, like a lot, but you're yeah. learning essentially to be your own, your own personal manager. Yeah. Sometimes there important. are things that you have to force quit and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I commend you. And I mean, for someone who works obviously as hard as you do and does as many things as you do, it's, it's really like, I mean, I don't want to say it's like admirable because we're all just out here sort of doing we're our just best. who we are. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that like, um, I understand how, how tiring it can be. And, uh, I, <laughs> it's 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 very heartening to see someone as accomplished as you be as open about this and um yeah well back to what you were starting to say um i think with with the you know musicians and how much we share about what's going on yeah. it is also part of that mystique of the i mm -hmm. can do something that you can't where you have to be you have to there, there does seem to be a little bit of magic about it. And mm -hmm. to admit that you've got an issue, like how many people have playing related stress injuries right. um, or whatever they're called, stress related yeah. playing injuries mm -hmm. from overuse and never say anything. Never and that's, anything. that's definitely better than it was 30 years ago. Oh my yeah. gosh. But it's still, <laughs> it's still, I believe, uh, generally a taboo subject. Um, I've agree. been so encouraged every time I've seen a young person taking time off and just saying because of my wrist like mm -hmm. that was so I remember when I was in school there were very few people who were brave enough to to actually say that that was what was going on and so many people are dealing with things like that this feels um hard because it's not understood yet um yes, it's a new totally. condition and it's basically saying like I have trouble uh making it through things and mm -hmm. so it is every time i mean to be to like we can cut this part out later if you want but <laughs> my manager asked me in an email if it would be okay to talk about this yeah. um, because this is a public facing thing and that's that's the mm -hmm. kind of question that is very sensitive and i'm being open about it because i don't feel like i have a choice because yeah. it does affect me and I want to be honest and I want to um, represent not only cellists well, but people who have long COVID. It's yeah. extraordinary the number of people right now, I think there are over a million people out of work because of long COVID, the mm -hmm. report in the, U the US alone. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, we, we don't know that much about it. I'm happy to be in a program with Mount Sinai in New York that, that mm -hmm. treats it. and um speaking fairly regularly with some of the lead researchers right now and they're learning things but it's just going to take a long time so in the meantime i've decided to 
embrace what it is right now and hopefully mm -hmm. it's not a part of me forever but yeah. while it is i can't pretend that it's not and so i'm actually um there will be more about this soon as i work on projects uh one project in particular that will deal directly with what this means in a musical way and mm -hmm. um allow me to to continue doing what i do and also be uh, hopefully inspiring people by, you know, putting myself being out there truthful. and, and yeah. being truthful and, and showing people something about a big thing that's going on. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a weird moment for sure, but it's mm -hmm. also an opportunity anytime you're faced with something like this, it's an opportunity to step into a space and embrace the humanness of yourself and of other people mm. um so you know lessons in lessons in humanness i guess yeah absolutely um yeah i i think uh we're we're just about at time um is there anything else uh you want to touch on before i wrap us up <laughs> Uh, not that I can think of. I'm super grateful to be on this and that we're talking about the concert this weekend, which mm -hmm. um, I hope everyone in Chicago who hears this will come out to see at the Harris Theater. I mm -hmm. love getting into the spirit of both of these pieces. I guess the the one thing I would share is a little bit about the music, which I didn't really dive Absolutely. into. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to connect and love chatting with you uh about deep things <laughs> no small talk here <laughs> no i know um, it's, it's yeah. my first episode on the pod and i <laughs> immediately congratulations super super fun yeah, yeah i why listen to a podcast where we're talking about the weather so yeah <laughs> so I'm, in. I'm in um so yeah what i would say about the music um the the rise the rise the the commission mm -hmm. piece by reynaldo is very personal and deals with um loss and grief and it's a mm -hmm. short piece that has been really uh i don't i don't know how much i can share about it right now because it's mm -hmm. it's such a very personal thing and i want to give him the space for that but it's it's just been incredibly meaningful to be connected to reynaldo through this process and to an honor to to be um, playing this piece, which carries such weight. And it's a beautiful sort of heartbreaking piece um, that in this very short span really covers some ground. And mm -hmm. so that's that's been really, uh, really beautiful to work work through and work on. And then, you know, the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, aside from all the instrumentation and the, and the percussion and uh, the movie score, it's this idea of a crouching tiger and hidden dragon theme, which is, you know, kind of hidden masters, um, mm -hmm. that a tiger could be crouching and that looks like a rock or mm -hmm. that a dragon could be sort of like looking like a, a post and it's actually unfurls and there's this great power, um, sort of, if you've seen the movie, then you would relate to those undertones of tension that that mm -hmm. go through everything that there's always more to what's going on and i think yeah. 
there are just beautiful moments in the music that capture that so well. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful challenge to be expressive in a way that, that captures um, that something is beneath the surface. And yeah. for me, that's the key to this piece. Yeah, of non-expressiveness almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like how how much can you pack into a mezzo forte? That's you know, it's like very very geeky example, but but it's very. That's been my I, guide I mean, to the piece, and I can't yeah. wait to share that with people. And that's the the audience will get that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, totally. And I so, personally, yeah. I'm a Michelle Yo, uh, uh, absolute super fan. So nice. Um, <laughs> It's very exciting nice. to hear the that uh, of one of the pieces that she was, you know, engaging with. Uh, yes. The movie, at least, is is you know getting another, getting some performance time. <laughs> well, maybe uh, there's still time to to get to Chicago. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. I'll send you the recording after. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us here at Classical Schmassical. Um, it was such a delight to talk to you um, and to our audience. If you enjoyed the show, there's plenty more where that came from. So please sh be sure to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you wanted to continue the conversation, join us at our Discord linked in the description or to visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash classical schmassical. And remember, stay classy and questionably classical.